Well, it's good to be with you this morning, both uh, here in person and those at home. Uh, yes, and happy Labor Day weekend. If you can let your mind drift back to what Labor Day was like a year ago, it's pretty different this year, isn't it? Boy, what a year this has been. But happy Labor Day weekend, and uh, this morning, I, uh, speaking of labor, I would like to begin with a story that's grounded in my place of labor. It's a true story. It's a personal story from uh, a series of events where I continue to serve both as my livelihood and primary ministry. Biblical Theological Seminary, now known as Missio Seminary. But this story comes from when we were in Hatfield. That's our Hatfield campus, Biblical Theological Seminary. Uh, I came as a faculty member in 1998. Dave Dunbar was president. Dave Dunbar was before he was pastor at Graves Bible Church served as president of Biblical Theological Seminary for 27 years. And uh, here's a picture of a typical day from uh, those years. A typical day at Biblical when Dave was president. Uh, Dave in his regalia, uh, waxing eloquent in a microphone with the faculty behind him applauding him. Uh, that, that's pretty much how I remember a typical day, right, Dave? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's how you remember it too, right? Uh, it's just, just, just uh, wonderful. The story I want to tell you comes from events around 2008. 2008, before the pandemic, was the year that represented the greatest financial crisis in the United States since the Great Depression. Now, uh, that's no longer true. Now, 2020 is, is that. I don't mean to chuckle about that, but uh, we thought that was going to be it in 2008. But it was a financial crisis that impacted the entire U.S. economy, including a little nonprofit ministry in Hatfield, Pennsylvania, called Biblical Theological Seminary. Uh, this is how Dave looked in, uh, in 2008. Uh, you look at that, you say, man, it doesn't look like the same person. Meanwhile, this was me in 2008. Yeah, I know. That picture looks like it was taken day before yesterday, doesn't it? Yeah. It's actually a 12-year-old picture, believe it or not. Uh, anyway, in 2008, I got a promotion. I mean, I was happy teaching theology as theology professor, but in 2008, I was promoted to academic dean. It sounds like a wonderful thing, and look how happy and relaxed we look in these pictures. There's actually pretty dark days at the seminary. The promotion I got was, in fact, a battlefield promotion. It was part of a restructuring in which we cut 25% of the school's budget, 26, 27%, let's just leave it at 25% of the school's budget, laid off about 15% of the staff. If I were telling the story to a banker, I'd say, well, we cut the budget by 25%, cut the staff 15%, and thus saved the school. It's not a completely sad story, but it's a sad story, 
a pretty brutal story. We were in danger of our lives, at least as an institution, as a ministry. Some of the most difficult years of my life were during that period. I had trouble sleeping. I, I, <clears throat> I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about our, our budget. Uh, as it turns out, the nonprofit that, that we are at, uh, at Biblical Now Missio, uh, a disproportionate amount of our gift income comes in June, the last month of our fiscal year, which means you go 11 months not knowing what's going to come in. It is a nerve-wracking, painful way to live. Also faith-inducing, but a painful, nerve-wracking way to live because you don't know if that's coming in. We did not know in 2008 that uh, though 2008 was the most budget red, that's the most uh, severest budget deficit year in the school's history, we did not know at that time that the Lord was going to bless us with eight straight years of black positive budget years. We didn't know that. I say eight. It was, it was seven. 2009 would have been budget positive, uh, but uh, we uh, sought to be Christian in uh, the layoff process and so paid severances uh, seeking to uh, take care of as best we could the people who lost their jobs. And I know some of you have been laid off. I thank the Lord I've never been laid off, but I have been part of the process of laying other people off. And I'll just tell you, that's no picnic either. Uh, I'm not sure which is worse. But uh, people that you are committed to the school, love the school, love the ministry, love the Lord, doing a good job. And you have to look them in the eye and say, you know, you're doing a good job. We just can no longer afford the position. Tough, brutal years. I'd wake up in the middle of the night thinking about, man, if we don't make up this $200,000 deficit, that's four more jobs. Who's it going to be and how are we going to do it? I was grumpy and impatient at home, gained some weight, I cracked four teeth, you know, just grinding my wear and mouth a night guard, mouth guard. I share some of that story with you because some of you, I know, are going through something similar right now. With this pandemic, your business is at risk. Your livelihood is at risk. I thank the Lord. Uh, so far, so good for Missio Seminary. It looks like we're going to have even enrollment this year. I'm no longer in the deanship, so some, it's someone's worry of how to uh, balance the budget, but it's no longer mine. I think the last time I preached... Uh, and incorporated Missio Seminary into it. I was telling you, I'm really wrestling with my commute being extended from eight minutes to 80 minutes because we moved to Center City. With a pandemic, my commute has gone from 80 minutes to about eight seconds. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm teaching from home. I mean, I, 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 I'm ready to go back to normal. I want to resume normalcy, but it, it's not been uh, bad for me personally. But I know for some of you, 
these are tough times. And I know that some of the stress that I'm telling you about is not just because of the circumstance, it's disclosing, revealing my own immaturity, my own lack of trusting God and all that. And, and shoot, I mean, I've got a doctorate in theology. I teach theology for a living. I mean, I know these things up here. Just trust God. And, but I know full well it's easy to teach. It's even fun to teach. But the doing and the dropping that eight inches from the head to the heart and the roughly cubit from the heart to the hands can be difficult. God was greatly at work in our midst during those years. These are the same years in which we were revising the curriculum and taking what we've now referred to as the missional turn, in which we came to recognize more and more that uh, if we recognize that God is not just a philosophical concept to be mastered, he's not just a sovereign entity presiding over the affairs of life, though he's plenty sovereign, he's plenty powerful, but he's actually on a mission, a redemptive mission, to restore, to mend a broken world. And not only that, he invites us into it. These are the things that we were learning and incorporating into our curriculum at the time. We adopted as our byline at that time, following Jesus into the world. We even had a board member or two tell us as a community, you know, there's no way God is going to let us be the missional seminary in North America uh, he's not going to allow us to be the teacher of missional leaders if he doesn't do the work of making us missional and even maybe requiring us to endure some of the cost of joining his mission. You know, Jesus says, follow me, and he tells us. I mean, he's plain and clear about it. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, son of man doesn't have anywhere to lay his, lay his head. Now, we never got to that point, but we shouldn't be surprised that joining God's mission may require some sacrifice. And boy, it did. Boy, it did. There were grievous losses. God was also doing a work of pruning. Pruning in individuals, uh, in our individual hearts, uh, challenging obstacles, removing idolatries, distractions. And uh, so, some of the pruning in terms of the transitions were, ended up being, we didn't see it all at the time, but it ended up being very good for us individually and us as a ministry in hindsight, you know, little, little did we know. I, I, I suppose we could talk about it in theory, but it's little did we know how true it was that God commonly uses transition to achieve transformation. That's true in our current context as well. There were some great blessings, some real heroes 
some real godliness and some real remarkable blessings can see in hindsight. One of the biggest blessings was the team that God put together on the cabinet, the executive leadership of the seminary in those years. Little did we know in 2008 that in three years we would have what still stands today as the historic high enrollment year. Uh, that's the blessing of God. It's also a lot of hard work, innovative, creative, marketing genius of the vice president of student advancement of the time, Pam Smith, Wayne Davidson. Dave used to call him the brain. He was the finance guy. Uh, I mean, he was vigilant. He was vigilant in making sure we didn't spend beyond our means as a school. Uh, Wayne and I often had disagreements uh, at cabinet level as to how much to risk, how much to you know, cut, how much to hold. The truth of the matter is, and I can say this in hindsight, these were some of the most difficult years of my life. One of the most remarkable privileges I, ha I have had in my life to this day was being able to be part of this leadership team at Biblical Seminary. I mean, godly people. By the way, uh, I, I looked through a number of pictures. That's the happiest picture I've been able to find of Wayne, and that's from his retirement party. <laughs> uh, he actually is a polio survivor. I mean, uh, anyway, remarkable people. Uh, not the only ones. Tom Skinner, longtime friend, personal friend of Dave Dunbar, but very skilled in, in fundraising and a godly man to boot. And then we had people in the works as well, like this guy, Rich McDaniel, uh, is a senior vice president from Cornell University, uh, is truly a world-renowned institutional organizational planner. Uh, he actually published a book, Measuring What Matters. I'm not saying I recommend the book. Uh, it's in no danger of making the New York Times bestseller list. But anyway, he is <laughs> so skilled an institutional planner that he's actually published books on it. So there were skilled people working hard, godly people doing the work of the ministry to enable us to pull out of that deficit of 2008 to work towards, we didn't know that there was record enrollment coming. We didn't know that there was going to be a legacy gift that would uh, give us some cushion coming. Uh, but, you know, two, three, five, seven, eight years later, looking back, you realize, oh my goodness, the Lord had it the whole time. I want to say that to you this morning. As tough as the current situation may be for you, the Lord's in it. The Lord's doing his work. I'm not saying it's not tough. Please don't do what I did and wallow in needless stress and worry and anxiety. Uh, the, it may not be clear what the Lord is up to, but God being missional means he's up to something. He's doing his work. Trust him. There are some heroic people, gifted people, skilled people working hard. 
But one of the principles that Dave Dunbar as president implemented, and this was not just a chapel message. This was a principle that he worked hard as president to infuse throughout our function as a seminary at this time. So one of the results was starting a weekly prayer meeting, yes. But that, that wasn't the only place where this principle was implemented. Because we're doing planning, we're doing organizational vision casting and all that. And Dave said, yes, we want to do all that, but we have to make sure that we are continually vigilant in finding ways to keep God in the conversation. I want to ask you this question this morning. And if you take nothing else from the message this morning, take this question. How are you doing at keeping God in the conversation of your life, of your work, of your plans, of your marriage, of your family, of your school planning? The various elements that you're wrestling with may be stressing over. How well are you doing at keeping God in the conversation. Now I'm going to add this line in the midst of a pandemic. Even when what he has to say may be unpopular, uncomfortable, or unpleasant. So God definitely wants to bring peace and comfort to his people. But sometimes God has elements of rebuke, correction, Training in righteousness. Not sure where I'm getting those phrases from. Anyway, sometimes what God wants to say may be uncomfortable, unpleasant, unpopular. And I will tell you, since the pandemic started, I've been wrestling with biblical teaching. First for myself, what has God up to in this? But I pretty much spent the summer teaching and preaching about what God may be up to, what God may be seeking to say in the pandemic. And I'm going to go through this quickly, uh, in part because I know it's going to be posted on Facebook Live and other places, so you can uh, press pause or rewind or whatever and write down uh, furiously the Scripture passages. But here's the pattern of Scriptural teaching that uh, convey the kinds of things God has been seeking to say in the past when he brings disciplinary measures, even such as sickness, pandemic, epidemic, uh, unpleasant measures. Our life is a vapor. We don't know what a day may hold. You know, don't boast about tomorrow. Boy, pandemic reminds us of that. Is this part of what God may be seeking to say? Money and wealth are poor sources of security. 
You know, are you one that's tempted to trust your bank account, your investments, your livelihood? Because those are unreliable sources of security. But God's a stronghold. Uh, he, He may need to undermine the money and wealth source of security to remind us that those are unsure, trust in what is sure in this life and the life to come. Time to clean out the idols. Boy, so much prophetic material reveals God's intolerance of idolatry. That is, prioritizing, making a central priority of life, a central passion and love in your life, something other than God. And, uh, you know, money, our work, our livelihood, our career can easily become idols. Um, You know, thinking about it, sports, professional sports, is that one of the idols that God is taking down? I mean, uh, it's just remarkable. The moment the NFL, the NBA, the uh, MLB, you know, the baseball league says, oh, we're going to go back to normal and get this back another team comes down with an outbreak of, of the virus. And so far, uh, I, I believe there's been no one who's died from it. I'm, I'm not wishing that on any. But it's interesting that God seems to be making sure, no, you're not going to just go back to spending billions and billions of dollars on this leisure activity, this entertainment kind of activity, with these obscene salaries and obscene amounts of spending on that, where stadiums take the place in the center of metropolitan uh, metropolises across the country that the church used to occupy. It's God cleaning out idols. Arrogance is offensive to God. A lot of prophetic material says God brings harsh measures to undermine arrogance and to humble the arrogant. What do you think? Think our culture? As you think about the last year or two, there been any, any arrogance, any boastful speaking, arrogant lines of attitude? You know, any at all? You know, but might God be offended at that and be seeking to address and redress some of that? And then this one's a biggie. God cares about the vulnerable. It's interesting that alongside the pandemic, the period of sickness, is this period of social civil unrest. But I will say particularly, I'd say something different in a different context maybe, but I will say particularly in our context, a suburban, prosperous, uh, majority white church, are we more concerned about the civil unrest than the pain and suffering that gave rise to the civil unrest? Because God's concerned about the injustices and the pain and suffering that come with those injustices of the vulnerable the marginalized, the disenfranchised. 
And those are not peripheral concerns of God. They're at the center of God's concerns. And he hammers that point home again and again in the prophets. And the prophets rebuke the prosperous and comfortable and says, how can you just go about your business and completely ignore, completely fail to consider the pain and suffering of the marginalized, the vulnerable? God cares about the vulnerable to you. Do you? So as you look at this list of things that God might be seeking to say, I ask again, how are you doing at keeping God in the conversation? God may well be seeking to say things to the American nation, the American culture. How about the American church? How about to Grace Bible Church? How about to you and to me? And if he's seeking to convey difficult, uncomfortable, unpopular, but very clear and effective messages, how are you doing at keeping God in the conversation? And you know, God reveals the Psalms to us to assist us in keeping him in the conversation. I mean, even the, the pastoral prayer this morning that, that Dave offered uh, was an example of, we have begun at Grace Bible Church, taking our cues and, and taking as our template for how to pray the Psalms, because God gives us the Psalms to help teach us how to keep him in the conversation. They're words to God, and they're also inviting God to speak back. There are at least six psalms that refer to sickness and being on a sickbed and asking for healing as part of the conversation. So I'm not the math person in the room, but six psalms out of 150, it's around 4%, I think. Uh, now, if I included references to bones and crushed bones and pain, we get that 4% up to about 10%. But, you know, it's not every psalm, but it's a significant enough strand in the psalms that when the psalmist, the person who writes the psalm, is sick, it's not always a result of sin. Sometimes it's affliction, sometimes, but it commonly cries out to God for help. But it is consistent. It's not, it's not always addressing sin. Sometimes it is. Psalm 41 is probably the most clear. Heal me, Lord, because I confess I have sinned against you. But always, 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 when the psalmist mentions his sickness, he says, at the very least, Lord, on my sickbed, you've got me looking up anyway. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to talk with you. To, in, to get you in, re-engaged in the conversation of my life. That's when a person is sick. How about when a whole country is sick? How about when a whole world is sick? Might it be an opportunity for God's world, certainly God's people, to look up and say, we need to, we want to, 
We are eager to, Lord, re-engage you in the conversation. I'm going to close our time with just a couple of reflections on one of those from a bed of sickness psalms, Psalm 30. (laughs) Don't worry, that wasn't the introduction and now the sermon starts. I'm near the end, okay? (laughs) This is more the culmination, the climax than the beginning. Don't worry. A little bit different, I know. But Psalm 30, some of this just preaches itself. So I don't have to do a lot of explication or exegesis. I exalted you, O Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths. I notice this is a prayer he prays. It sounds like when the crisis is at the end or near the end. You didn't let my enemies gloat over me. There are definitely people who hope this, who hope this pandemic brings the American economy down forever. Well, now you say, well, maybe we deserve the rebuke. There are people who hope this pandemic, with its mask requirements and social distancing requirements, hope this destroys the American church forever. There are people who, unfriendly, hostile to the cause of God, are hoping this pandemic does lasting damage to the people and things and purposes and things that matter to God. Part of our prayer is, needs to be, God, don't let that happen. Don't let those who are gloating over this be able to continue to gloat. I called to you for help and you healed me. Now, there may be repentance required for that healing and restoration to take place. But I called for help, you healed me, you brought me from the grave, you spared me from going to the pit. Sing to the Lord, you his godly ones. Praise his holy name. There's a day coming when we're back together when I hope this is the song that we sing. He's healed us. He's restored us. Praise his holy name. And then he gets actually downright theological. And begins reflecting on the character of God. His anger lasts only a moment. By the way, that's the character of God. He's slow to anger. And his anger doesn't last long. That's the grace of God. But we dare not mistake Yahweh God of the Bible with Fufu the Cuddle Bunny. Or Santa God. Or Aladdin's genie in the bottle. Or... uh, Grandpa, softy God, Yahweh God of the Bible is slow to anger. But if you work at it, you can get him angry. <laughs> you don't want to. He's slow to anger. And he, the core of his character is not anger. He's longing to restore. He's, his core desire is for our best. Pain and suffering, affliction, trial, tribulation bring grief to the heart of God. Even when that pain and suffering is caused by disciplinary measures, he himself is righteously taking. He is still grieved at the suffering and the pain and seeks for it to end. 
His anger lasts only for a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. So it's not like you've got, well, you've got God's love, but you've also got his wrath, like they're even, you know, elements on the scale. No, 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 no. His love, mercy, grace element is far greater than his anger, wrath. But the anger, wrath works towards his good ends to bring about righteous justiceness because he loves us. Because his love doesn't just let us wallow in wickedness and rebellion. His love and grace pursues actively and effectively restoration and pursuit. You might cry all night long, but joy comes in the morning. I have gone through periods of weeping. Even when my sister died, there are periods of weeping. I can't remember ever weeping all night, though. This is saying the pain and suffering you may endure, it might last all night. The point being, but joy comes in the morning. And I realize this is not a literal time element. This is a poetic, emblematic emblematic kind of conveyance of the principle being that, that the sorrow of life and the joy in life are like the night and the dawn of the morning. The point of it is, Whatever pain and suffering, however severe, physically, emotionally, psychologically, whatever pain and suffering you are enduring now, if you are a child of God, I can assure you, I can't say when it's going to end, but I can assure you with full confidence based on the authority of God's word, whatever pain, suffering, trial, tribulation you are suffering right now, it is temporary. The joy is eternal. It will one day last forever. However deep the pit of darkness you may may be in, may last your lifetime. But then, if you're a child of God, through Jesus Christ, you wake up on the other side of glory. There's nothing but joy and happiness there. Part of what the psalmist is revealing is this is because of the character of God. Now, as for me, when I was prospering, I said, I'll never be shaken. When you favored me, you made my mountain stand firm. When you hid your face, I was dismayed. So I called out to you, O Lord. To the Lord, I cried out for mercy. Now, you might be tempted to sneer at this, to sneer at the psalmist. A ah, pretty fair-weather, fickle kind of a believer you are there, psalmist. You know, you're happy when you're prospering, but discouraged and dismayed when you're not. Huh, maybe you ought to be more of a person of faith, huh? I'm not sure this is the paragon that the psalmist is recommending? What this inspired portion of God's word does reveal, though, is that it's normal. I can relate to this. When I was prosperous and comfortable, I, I, I was happy, felt secure, and I'd even observe that's part of the blessing of God. 
that you can feel that secure and even forget that, you know, this could end tomorrow. I mean, that's part of the blessing. But then when you hid your face, that's actually when I was pushed to call out to the Lord. I'm not sure this is ideal, but I, it, it is pretty normal. And then he starts conversing with the Lord. You know, if I die from this, I'll tell you what my prayers were like during the financial crisis. I mean, I, it wasn't that I wasn't praying. But my prayers when Biblical Seminary was going through its financial crisis was, you know, Lord, what, what good is it going to do if you end this ministry? I mean, think of, the, think of the leaders that won't be trained. Think of the, the deficit of, uh, of godly leaders to lead your people. I mean, um, you know, you want me to go back to moving furniture? <laughs> uh, Again, you might sneer at those. What's he trying to do? Bargain with God? At the very least, here's the point. Here's at least one very biblically grounded point. Uh, What advantage does it do for God and his kingdom for you to remain healthy and prosperous? I mean, I, I know what you and I think. You know, we, we think of our steady state, normal state, as comfortable, prosperous. And when, and when that is suspended, when that's challenged, God, what are you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm suffering here. I'm in pain. Flip it the other way. What advantage is it to God other than his taking delight in the happiness of his children? Okay. Uh, that, that's always true. But what advantage is it to God and his kingdom to prosper and preserve you? Because that's part of the conversation here that the psalmist has. You know, Lord, there are advantages to your purposes that I am committing to. You keep me alive. Hear me, O Lord. Help me. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth, the, the funeral clothes. Converted my sackcloth into celebration clothes, party clothes. My heart sings praise to you and will not be silent. Lord, my God, I'll give thanks to you forever. I notice that all of these praises and blessings are past tense. For you, they may be present tense. For us, they may even be future tense. Lord, please... Bring soon the removal of our wailing and suffering. Resume our joy, I pray, Lord. We give thanks to you forever. I'm going to ask you one last time. How are you doing at keeping God in the conversation? And if you're looking for a way, if you're looking for a how do I do so, is it possible that Psalm 30 could be a good pandemic psalm for you? 
tailored to your own points of conversation with the Lord, but could Psalm 30 serve as kind of a template for you? Let's pray. Father God, we we know you're at work. We know your character is good and that you want our best. Even when our lives are abnormal, even when we are uncomfortable, even when we are anxious under stress, even when we're in pain. We look to you, God, knowing that you are at work, maybe in uncomfortable ways, but in ways that we know, God, are ultimately for our good. Help us to trust you. We praise you. And we seek to praise you and thank you, not only here and now, but for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.